Let me invite you this morning to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter number 24 this morning. Luke chapter number 24. I have been uh, overjoyed and looking forward to this day. Um, I love Easter Sunday. love the resurrection, celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Uh, the resurrection of Christ means everything to us, doesn't it? Uh, what do we have without it? We don't have anything. And uh, so we've, we've taken last week and Wednesday and then today to just to look at the gospel account, essentially. We saw the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem last week, how that uh, the people received him, shouting Hosanna to the son of David. All looked well, but just a few days later, Jesus was crucified. We looked at the crucifixion of Christ on Wednesday, how he was betrayed and then ultimately put to death, and we know that... None of that was by chance or circumstance. It was all according to the sovereign plan of God because through his death, Jesus atoned and paid the penalty for sin. But that is not where the story ends, is it? If it ended there, we'd all be in trouble. Thank God that Sunday came, that the first day of the week came. Three days later, Christ is risen. And so I've titled the message here this morning, and it comes really from our text, as you'll see in just a moment, Truth or tale of the risen Christ. Truth or tale of the risen Christ. And so let's read Luke chapter number 24, and we're going to look at verse 1 down through verse number 12. And uh, there's a handout there in your bulletin, so you can see the text there as well, uh, and the notes that will come through the message. The scriptures say, But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. That question and statement just thrills my soul this morning. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the Mary of the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. How many tales have we heard in our life? We've heard many tales, right? It's kind of part of our life and society, a, a tale is a story. It's usually one that's fiction, maybe one that's unbelievable. Perhaps you have a favorite tale that you've heard. Many of the tales of, that men have, have written have been made into good movies, especially some of our childhood favorites, movies like Beauty and the Beast, the first movie I ever saw in theaters. I had to be told that because I don't remember anything about it. I was so little. Uh, but uh, it's just a tale, right? It's not real. You got Little Red Riding Hood and Sleeping Beauty, The Lion King, my personal favorite. These are those, you know, childhood tales that have been turned into movies. 
But did you know that many people put the resurrection of Jesus in the same category as a tale? As if it's just some maybe religious fiction, maybe some interesting story uh, that has been conjured up in history. There's a man named Lee Strobel. Many of you may have heard of him. He was once a journalist in Chicago, and he was a fact and science kind of man who didn't believe in God, and he disdained the idea of such. And then one day, his wife became a Christian. His wife became a Christian. Now, this brought quite a big breach on their marriage, and so with his journalistic instinct, he sought out to disprove Christianity. And when he asked his co-worker, who was a Christian also, how he could do such a thing, his co-worker told him, you would have to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection of Jesus is disproven, it's all a house of cards and it all comes tumbling down. And so Lee Strobel made it his mission to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. Because in his mind, God and Jesus and Christianity, it was all just a tale. It was all just made up. It was not real to him. He thought it was a fairy tale for the weak-minded person. Now, I'm going to come back to the results of his mission later. Many of you already know the conclusion. But why is it that some people believe the resurrection is just a tale, some religious story? That really has no viable truth to it. Well, the fundamental reality is that mankind, all of mankind knows for certain that no person comes back from the dead. Especially when they've been dead for three days, right? The idea of someone rising from the dead is an impossibility to the natural mind of man. And even the disciples in this text didn't believe it at first when the women came and told them what they saw and heard. And what sticks out, what sticks out to me is there in verse number 11, when they heard the words of the women, what did they think of it as? They thought it seemed to them as an idle tale. An idle tale. Why would you all come back and tell us this? He can't be alive after what we saw happen to him. And that's the response of many in our day. They see it as an idle tale. But really, is it a tale or is it indeed the truth? Friend, we're gathered here today as believers because we know beyond doubt it is not just a tale, it is indeed the truth. The truth worth dying over. The truth that takes us on to our eternal home. Now we come to this wonderful account and what happened on that special day of Christ's resurrection and what we learn from Scripture reveals to us the absolute truth of the resurrection. Christ is risen from the dead. The Scriptures proclaim it. History confirms it. And believers, we know it. We know it. As we sung just a moment ago, we know it within our heart. So I want you to see just three points from the narrative here this morning. And remember, this is a narrative. We're going to come through and bring out some things that we can see in the text and some applications for us at the end as well. But notice with me, number one, we see the morning at the tomb. This is just that, that, that morning, the first day of the week, the morning at the tomb. What's the scene here? What's happening in this narrative? Well, the women come to the tomb with two things I point out in this text. The first thing they come to the tomb with is sorrow. They're sad. They're mournful. They're 
bewildered. They're brokenhearted. They're mournful over this. Now understand that, that Jesus had many disciples throughout his ministry. Many people he had, he had changed their lives and showed them the truth. He had an impact on the world uh, and that surrounding area like no man had ever done or ever will do. And friend, because of the truth we're seeing today, he continues to change people's lives throughout the world. That's an evidence of his resurrection itself. But these particular women, they also had been changed by Jesus. They were struck to the core with sorrow over what had happened to Jesus just a few days ago. These women, they saw their Lord who had changed their life. They saw him betrayed, beaten, battered, led up Golgotha's hill, nailed to a cross, suffering and dying in the worst agony imaginable. They even saw Jesus' body taken down from the cross and saw where he had been placed in his tomb. And that brings us to verse 1 where we see these women, notice, on the first day of the week at early dawn. Let's just pause to consider this for a moment. I don't know if you're an early riser or not, but they, they were early risers. And here they are at early daybreak, early dawn, coming to the tomb. And do you know that this is one reason why the church worships on Sunday and not some other day? You ever thought about that? Why is it that we're gathered here on the first day of the week? Because it was the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. This day of the week is the day in which we commemorate, not just on Easter, but every Sunday the church gathers as a testament that Christ is not in the tomb. That shows us the importance of gathering together with the saints in the church. And so this has been the practice of Christians in the scriptures and throughout history. They come to the tomb on the Lord's day, as it would be called in scripture, and they come to this tomb, and as they're coming to the tomb, they didn't yet know that Jesus had risen. Now, as they're on their way, what do you suppose filled their hearts? Great sorrow. Great sorrow. All of us would be sorrowful in this moment. They were sorrowful about all that had just happened. All of those who loved Jesus and followed Jesus were broken over what had happened to him. The disciples were broken even before Jesus was crucified by Jesus' words. They didn't understand how it was all going to piece together. But Jesus began to tell them that one of you, 12, is going to betray me. That betrayal is going to lead to my death. He's going to leave them. Matthew 26, 22, they were very sorrowful. They began to say one to another, is it I, Lord? Talk about not even trusting your own self, right? All of them are wondering, could it be me that's going to do this? They're sorrowful over what's going to happen, what the Lord has said, and then the reality of it all does happen, and they're there in the garden, and the disciples are there, all except one, right? And then it was Judas Iscariot. He comes with that band of soldiers, and can you imagine the disciples it clicking finally? The, is it I, is it I? And they see, hey, there's, that's Judas. Judas, Judas is coming, and he comes to betray Betray the Lord, and, and he was horribly betrayed, tortured and crucified as we looked at Wednesday night. He suffered worse than any man, and some of them saw it. Christ was gruesomely scourged by the Romans. 
crowned with thorns, mocked and shamed, condemned by the Jews, his own national people, nailed to a cross and died in unimaginable agony as he took on sin for himself, on, upon himself. You know, they brought Jesus to Calvary to die, and what you'll find in the Scriptures, I think it's interesting, is that these women were following along, weeping for their Lord, unable to do anything about it, having to sit there and watch as their Lord suffers and dies. We read this in Luke 23, 27. There followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. What a scene this must have been. Now some of them heard Jesus speak his very last words from the cross. Some of them saw Jesus take his very last dying breath. If you look backwards one chapter to Luke 23, we're going to just stay in the Gospels until the very end. I'll have some references, but primarily just Luke we'll look at together. Luke 23, and look at this with me, 46 through verse 49. Notice that Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. That's the last words of Jesus here on the cross. But notice verse 47 and, and onward. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all of the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Verse 49. And all his acquaintances, and who else? The women. The women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So these women have, have followed along as Jesus bore his cross all the way to Golgotha's hill, and then there they are standing in the distance watching all of this transpire, watching him take his last breath. And some of these same women are the very women that we see coming to the tomb early in the morning. Now, some time has passed since they saw Jesus die that day. It's been three days and three nights. Is that enough time for all the sorrow to be gone when someone you loved has died? Absolutely not. Nowadays, it just takes that long to have the funeral and plan it, right? Someone passes away, and it's usually two or three days before you get to actually uh, have the funeral and have them buried. But, but we know that, uh, that Jesus had to be rushed with haste to his burial because the Sabbath was about to begin, and they couldn't do anything with the dead on the Sabbath, and so there was a rushed uh, burial for him. And so this morning, the, the women came to the tomb. They're reeling. They're still broken, still sorrowful over what had happened to the Lord. But notice with me, letter B, this morning. Not only did they come to the tomb with sorrow, they came to the tomb with spices. They came with spices. You say, well, why is that significant? I'll point this out. Now, what does one typically come to a tomb or grave with? Usually it's flowers or something to leave in honor of them or a memorial or if you're a Jew they, they put rocks on their tombs as memorials that's a cheap free way to do it I guess but these women you understand they come with spices they're not there to leave a memorial by the Lord's graveside they are there to properly uh, prepare his body for permanent burial because it wasn't done well enough previously you look at verse 1 and notice what we say what we see they're coming to the tomb at early dawn, 
and they're taking the spices that they had prepared. Now, what are these spices used for? They're used for properly preparing the body for remaining in the tomb. Now, we read in another account of the Gospels, in John's account, that Jesus' body did have some spices applied to it already by a man that we see earlier in the ministry of Jesus, a man named Nicodemus, and then another high ruler, Joseph of Arimathea. This was his tomb he was placed in. But John 19, 39 through 40, notice this with me. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And what are these spices all about? The, the combination of this mixture was meant to help keep the smell down as the body decomposes. Myrrh was a very fragrant, gummy raisin, which the Jews turned into a powdered form and mixed it with aloes, and they would prep the body with these spices and then wrap them in a linen cloth. They, they did not embalm like Egyptians did, but they prepared the body so that it would not uh, smell as much during, during uh, decom- decomposition. Now, typically, according to the custom of the Jews, the body would be prepared this way and placed on a burial slab in a tomb until it had completely decomposed. Afterward, the bones were often taken and put into what is called a uh, ossuary. It's a small wood or stone box. We call them bone boxes. You'll see them all over Israel if you ever go there. That's what they would do. So that burial slab could be reused. But we know Jesus wouldn't need such a thing, would he? You see, these women, they saw all that happened to Jesus and from him being taken down the cross and put in the tomb. And we read this in Luke 23. Again, look at verse 50 through verse 56. We see his burial. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him. It was a fire of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Now, you notice that Nicodemus gave some spices and put some spices, but the women saw all this happen, and evidently what their conclusion is, they didn't do a good enough job. Now, that's understandable, right? Usually, if I clean something, Bethany has to come behind me and get all that I missed. Anybody else identify with that? I'll I'll ask her, didn't I do good enough? She'll say, no, you missed this spot or that spot. That's just how it works. But these women see what's happening, and so they conclude after seeing him put it into that tomb, we're going to go back and get some more spices, and we're going to come back and do this properly, I guess. And since they're coming back to the tomb with spices to properly prepare his body, here's what I want you to think about. What does that tell you about what's going through their mind? They've got spices, and they're they're going to prepare his body. What does that tell you about them? Were they expecting a resurrection? No. They expected Jesus to be in the tomb and stay in the tomb, even though he already told them, hey, guys, all this is going to happen. I'm going to rise again the third day. 
He tells them in Luke 9.22 saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He told that to his disciples. The women, no doubt, among that group. Even though he told, told them, and they would have heard these words too, they did not understand or see this truth clearly. This was a shock to them. They are going on as if the funeral was over and the tomb needed its engraving. But Jesus understands. As we come through this text, he does exactly what he says he would do. He said he would be betrayed, and he was. He said he would be crucified, and he was. And there's only one thing left. I'm going to rise again. And this is what he does. He rises from the dead. And so though they are coming with sorrow and spices, they would need the spices, and their sorrow would be turned into joy unspeakable. Weeping may endure for a night. Joy comes in the morning. Notice with me number two this morning. We see the miracle at the tomb. The miracle at the tomb. This miracle is very plain. The first part of this miracle is we see that the tomb was empty. It's empty. They're coming to a tomb which is not supposed to be empty, but it's empty. Now, while these ladies are headed to the tomb, they have some serious concerns about being able to apply these spices to Jesus' body. What kind of concerns do you think they would have? Well, number one, the tomb is guarded by Roman soldiers. You don't mess with the Roman soldiers. You don't expect the Roman soldiers to help out the Jews. They're just not real fond of them. We learn in another text that Pilate had set a Roman seal upon that tomb, which means it's off-limits. Nobody moves this stone. And to secure the tomb, because the Jews feared that the disciples might steal his body and start a rumor about a resurrection, which the resurrection was actually going to be true. They didn't have to steal his body, right? That's, that's, that's still a common false narrative among Jews today, that the disciples stole the body of Jesus, which is easily disproven. But Pilate stationed two Roman soldiers there. In Matthew 27, 65 and 66, he said, Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So these women have that obstacle before them, the Roman soldiers. But not only that, secondly, they're concerned. They voiced this concern. The tomb was covered over by a large stone. Not a small stone. A large stone. Matthew 27, 60 tells us that they had rolled a great stone over the entrance of the tomb. This was a legitimate concern for these ladies, right? You read in Mark's account, and this is what they're saying to each other on the way. They're saying, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Who are we going to get to do this? They don't have the strength to move such a massive stone. The Lord gave men to help women with those sorts of things, right? Not necessarily rolling away stones, but opening pickle jars and that sort of thing. We, we know how that works. What happens as they approach the place in the tomb? This is where it just thrills my soul. Verse 2. They come to where the tomb is, and they found the stone was already rolled 
away. The stone was already rolled away. What had happened? This is not what they are expecting. What happened is that the Lord, by a miracle, took care of both obstacles that were before them. The Roman soldiers and that really large stone. Matthew's account tells us what happened. Listen to this. I love it. Matthew 28, 2-4. Here's what we read. Behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. So God sends this mighty angel rolls back the stone, he's in radiant glory, and these two soldiers who are supposed to be the bravest men in the world in the Roman army, they're shaking in their boots and they become as dead men. They're so fearful. The two problems these women face are taken care of in one moment. So they go inside the tomb and what do they find in verse 3? When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord. They knew he was there, right? That they saw them, they saw Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus in this tomb. There was no like, are we in the wrong spot? Is this the wrong place? They knew exactly where Jesus was laid. And they come in there and Jesus' body is not there. What were they expecting to see as they entered the tomb? You know what they were expecting? They were expecting to enter that tomb and to see a cold, lifeless body, beaten and mangled and, 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 and totally battered beyond human recognition, as Isaiah the prophet tells us. They were expecting to probably feel a huge, a huge wave of sorrow as they beheld the body of their Lord, so terribly slaughtered, laying lifeless on that stone slab. But what they were expecting is not what they found. Expecting to see Jesus, they don't see him at all. But they see someone else. Two someone else's. In verse 4, what do we find? While they're perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Can you imagine this sight? Walking into an empty tomb and the man that you thought was there is not there. But here's these two men, they're angels. Their appearance is dazzling. It's dazzling. What would you think? How would you respond in that scenario? I think we'd all be struck a little bit, right? Who are these guys? What's going on? But we notice that they get they, that how they react in verse 5. They're frightened and they bowed their face to the ground. But the angels speak comforting words to them with a question. And a question that begins their minds towards the truth about Jesus. What's the question these angels ask? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Think about that question. With that question, they are plainly saying to these women, the one you think is dead is actually alive and he's not here. This tomb is the place of the dead. The alive don't belong here. It would be like me going to a cemetery trying to find you, but you're alive right here. 
You're not over there because you're not dead. That tomb was empty because Jesus is no longer there and because he is risen. And that brings us to the greatest miracle of this whole account. This is what we find. It's not the earthquake. It's not the angels. It's this. Letter B is that the Lord had risen. He had legitimately and literally risen from the dead. At some point, once the the time marker of the third day came across, that cold, dead body got warm again. That heart that was no longer beating slowly began to pump. Life had come back. The life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. Verse 6, they tell him those famous, glorious words. He is not here, but has risen. Can you imagine those glorious words entering their ears and as it processed into their mind? We've all heard news at some point in our life that was just somewhat shocking, right? And when you get shocking news and it enters your ears and goes to your mind, you're processing, you're beginning to think about it. Whether it's good news or bad news, you're, you're beginning to think trying to reconcile how could this happen and what happened and and what, what do I do next? Could there be any better news than this? You see, the reason he's not in that tomb is because he left that tomb long before the stone was ever rolled away. You understand that the stone was rolled away not for Jesus to exit, but for man to see he's not there. You get that? He didn't have to have the stone to roll away to get out. He just walked out. Because he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He, 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 He transcends the very laws of nature because he created the laws of nature. So he didn't need the stone rolled away for for, for, for him to get out. The stone is rolled away for us to know that he is not there, friend. When you go to Israel, if you ever get the chance to go, I encourage you to do it. There is a tomb nearby, what's known as Golgotha's Hill. You know why that tomb is unique? Because it's empty. It's empty. The tomb fits the biblical description of the one Jesus was placed in. As you read the scriptures and you read the details about this tomb and where Golgotha is, and there on the door they have a sign that says, He's not here, he is risen. He's not here, he is risen. I've walked inside of that tomb twice and seen it. And I can tell you with my own eyes, he is not in there. He's not there. And here's why this is important, Christian, to your faith and to the world. Every other prophet, Every other great religious leader, every other so-called little g God is lying dead and lifeless in a grave somewhere. There's only one that lives today, and his name is Jesus. The world doesn't like this truth. They don't like the fact that we're exclusive to one way of salvation and eternal life. But this is why there is only one Lord, one Savior, friend, one King. And He is Jesus Christ the Lord. His tomb's the only one 
that's empty, that was exited by him. Only one way to have eternal life, and it's through the one who conquered death itself. Now the angels remind these ladies of what Jesus had told them. In verse 6 through 7, he said, Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered to the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. They were told they didn't get it earlier. But now it begins to all click together. You ever had a light bulb moment? I have those all the time. Usually when I have them, I think I'm pretty dumb. Like, how did I not see that? How did I not get that? One of the usual ones when I'm running around the house looking for my keys and they're in my pocket, right? Light bulb. Been there the whole time. But that's the way it is for them. Imagine that they're probably thinking, notice verse 8, they remembered his words. They remember the moment Jesus told them this. They remember hearing it. You think they might have thought, how did we miss that? I remember hearing him say that. Why did that not click with me? Why did that not register with me? I know I would have been thinking that well, that way. But the truth is, as we read the scriptures, they weren't meant to fully understand it until it was all accomplished. And that's just the way it is with some things in God's divine program. He tells it to us plain. We're not meant to get it until a later point. Jesus said in his ministry to his disciples, there's many things that I want to tell you, but you can't bear them now. There's a lot of truth simply we have to wait on and grow in. But this was all according to the sovereign plan of God. And what's fascinating is that no matter what attempts were made to keep Jesus' words from coming, not coming true, there was nothing that was going to stop him from exiting that tomb. Now you think about it, the Jews feared his exit from the tomb, not by resurrection, but by being stolen and, and causing them more trouble, right? So the Jews, they feared his exit from the tomb. The Romans tried to fortify the tomb from his exit, but nothing could keep him in that tomb. I find it funny that Pilate says, all right, go make the tomb as secure as you can. Do your best to make it secure. Even the best of Rome couldn't keep it secure. You see, if they had put 5 trillion soldiers and 10,000 large stones upon it, he still would have walked out. There's not any power in this world that would have kept Jesus in the grave. The greatest enemy that we have is death itself, and death couldn't keep him down. Listen to Peter's words in his sermon, his wonderful sermon on Pentecost, as he describes this. Acts 2, 22 through 24, he says to the very crowd that crucified him, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, same one, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was what? Not possible for him to be held by it. It's not possible that Jesus would be kept in the tomb. And so Peter here is emphasizing 
that the death, burial, and resurrection were the sovereign work of God and that overcoming death was not an option. It was a certainty. This is the miracle of all miracles. Notice with me number three this morning. I want you to see the message from the tomb. What's the message that we get from this narrative, from the tomb? Two things about this. Christ's resurrection is an undeniable truth. It's an undeniable truth. You say, well, there's many people that deny it. They do so out of spiritual blindness and hardness of heart. The plain, open facts, testimony of Scripture, the testimony of people, it's an undeniable truth. But you consider these women at the tomb. What do you think they would do with such news? Well, they go tell someone because they were told to. Verse 9, that's exactly what they did. They went and told the disciples. But you look at verse 11, what's their response? These words seemed to them as what? An idle tale. They did not believe them. The word used here for idle tale refers to that which is totally devoid of anything worthwhile. Idle talk, nonsense. That's what they think. These women are just talking nonsense. This, This can't be. They literally thought the women were speaking foolishness, empty words, like a fairy tale that was imaginary, like some last-ditch sliver of hope. And you know that there's many today that say the same thing. They look at Christians like they've lost their mind. Why do you go to church every Sunday and worship this Jesus? Isn't he just another religious figure of the past? No, he's a living, reigning Savior, Lord and King of today and forever. To them, the resurrection of Christ is an unbelievable tale. Richard Dawkins, I've mentioned him before, one of the most famed atheists of our day, said presumably what happened to Jesus was what happened to all of us when we die. We decompose. Accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. You know what Jack and the Beanstalk is? It's a tale. It's a tale. That's his perspective. But that gives you a tragic look at what spiritual darkness does to even some humanly brilliant men. Doesn't matter how smart he thinks he is, he's blind and dead in sin. Unable to see even plain fact and reason because of that. See, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is overwhelming and undeniable. Peter heard this. He went and marveled at what had happened. He wasn't quite convinced yet, but he's curious. But then very soon, he and all the disciples would be gathered together in one room. They're gathered because they're afraid of the Jews. They just killed their Lord, right, just a few days ago? They're gathered all together in one room, and guess who walks in? Guess who shows up? Didn't have an invitation, just comes on in. The door was even shut. Walked through it. It's Jesus. And what's Jesus do? He goes in there and tells them. What happened to the hands of Jesus? Nails were driven through them. Look at my hands and my feet. Nails were driven through his feet. He says in Luke 24, 39, that it is I myself, touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Some of them might think, oh, we're seeing a ghost, we're seeing a spirit. No, Jesus was physically and literally resurrected, still bearing the scars as an eternal testament of what he's done for our redemption. What better proof would one need than to see the risen Christ? 
right before their eyes. And we all know the occasion with Thomas, right? He wasn't there that first time. They meet up again and the disciples are telling them, Thomas, you missed it. You missed it. Jesus, it really is alive. He came in and we saw him. And what was Thomas's reaction? Thomas said, except I can see and touch his wounds, I won't believe. And I love how maybe it might have been a week later, a few days later, I don't remember the time frame, but they're gathered together again and Jesus comes straight into the room again. He doesn't go to any of them except Thomas. He goes directly to Thomas and what's he say? Thomas, behold my hands, touch them. Behold my side, feel it. What is Thomas's response to that? He said, my Lord and my God. Because that's who Jesus is. You can't kill God and him stay down. His physical body came up again. That's the whole purpose he took on a body. It was for the point of death, so that he would be raised. Henry Morris rightly said this, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the crowning proof of Christianity. If the resurrection did not take place, then Christianity is a false religion. If it did take place, then Christ is God and the Christian faith is absolute truth. I hope everybody in here understands this, that there is no middle ground. You're either with Christ or against him. He's either true or he's not. By all means, I hope you see today the truth of his resurrection. The empty tomb bears witness of it. But beyond just the empty tomb are the eyewitnesses who declared their testimony of seeing the risen Christ. I want you to look at another passage with me briefly. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 through 8. Paul lays out the gospel here very plainly in verse 3 and 4. But I'll have you note as we come through this text, there's a repeated statement. A repeated statement. At least four times. I delivered you, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared. To Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. What do you find repeated in this text? Jesus Christ Or rather, he was seen, he was seen, he was seen. You see, because of Christ's resurrection, these people were changed drastically and died on the truth that Jesus lives. I want you to think about this. What are you willing to die for? There's not a whole lot in our world that you'd say, oh, I would die for that, right? What are you willing to die for? If Jesus was not really risen and this was all some orchestrated lie, would they be willing to die for such? Would you die for a hoax that you knew was a hoax? Would you willingly, knowingly die for a lie that you knew was a lie? Absolutely not, friend. You die for truth. And for the truth of the resurrected Savior, these disciples and apostles were killed in brutal ways. 
Matthew was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Thomas was speared in India. James was stoned and clubbed to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Paul was beheaded in Rome. John the Apostle was boiled alive. God delivered him from that. It's still such great torment. All for a lie? All for something they just wanted to conjure up? No, friend. All of this suffering and martyrdom is evidence of the resurrection of Christ. They were willing to die for the risen Christ who overcame death, and therefore the very death they faced themselves is not the victor. They had nothing to fear because the truth of His resurrection was undeniable. And understand, as you study through church history, millions upon millions of Christians have endured the same. All because He lives. He lives, He lives today. He lives within our hearts. We know Him because He lives Lastly, letter B, Christ's resurrection. Not only is it an undeniable truth, but it has brought the ultimate triumph. What does Christ's resurrection mean for you and me? Here's what it means, friend. It means that there is victory. There is victory over sin because Jesus overcame sin and died for sin. He's already atoned for it. There is victory over the darkness of this world because Jesus overcame the darkness of There is victory over the devil because Jesus overcame the devil. There is victory over death because Jesus overcame death. Understand this morning, there is victory in Jesus for all who believe. If you don't believe, you can't expect victory. You're dead even now in your sin. Only by faith alone can we have this victory. It is ours, though. 1 Corinthians 15, same chapter. Look at this, last, last passage. Chapter 15, verse 55. Listen to what Paul says. Read this whole chapter. It's all about the resurrection. But verse 55 and forward, he says, Based on the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection to come, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Where is it? It's gone. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But notice verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives who? Us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, because you're in Christ, you're a partaker of the victory that Christ sealed and settled long ago. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear what happens in this world. You are already on victory's side. You are risen with him. So I ask you, do you want victory? Do you want freedom? Do you want eternal life? Do you want forgiveness of sins? You can have it, but only in Christ. Only in Christ. He alone is our Savior. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, our salvation hinges upon the incarnate is wrapped up in him. Because there's no victory without him. No heaven without Him. No hope without Him. No help except in the risen Christ. You understand, you're not ready for death until you know Christ. And millions of people are dying, into a, entering into a Christless eternity to suffer in hell for their sins because they reject the risen Christ. Your life is incomplete without Christ. But you can have him today only by faith alone. 
even that faith is a work of grace. Truth or tale of the risen Christ. It's the truth, and it's an undeniable truth. To close what I began with in our introduction with Lee Strobel, the journalist, he set out to discredit the resurrection. And what he found was not what he wanted to find. He thought he would find overwhelming evidence to put Christianity in the grave. Instead, he found overwhelming evidence of a resurrected Savior that he could not ignore. His hard-hearted unbelief had to be put into a grave by the grace of God. He was converted to Christianity. You know why? Because the empty tomb is not a tale, it's the truth. It's the truth, Christian. He arose triumphantly, granting victory to all of his people, all those who believe. Christian, if you're saved today, You need to rejoice, praise God, and thank Him for the resurrection. And may you live in light of that. Today, if you're not saved, you understand even now you're dead in your sins, headed for eternal death. Christ died for sinners. Christ died to overcome what we could never overcome. And only those who repent and believe in Christ are placed on victory's side. So which side are you on today? Only you know that, and the Lord knows that. And I pray that he will make that clear and draw you, convict you, make it so unmistakably clear, you must have Christ. Let us stand as we pray and prepare for a closing song. Father in heaven, we bow before you this morning. Words really can't describe how glorious and wonderful the resurrection of Christ is to us. Your plan of redemption that you put forth, that has fulfilled in Christ all on behalf of your people, chosen from eternity past. Father, I pray that you would work mightily through this text and through the truth of the risen Christ, that it would affect our hearts, that it wouldn't just go in one ear and out the other. It wouldn't just be to us as some kind of a tale, but rather we would see it as the undeniable truth that we are accountable to believe upon. Father, I pray that you would save sinners by this gospel message. Convict them of their sins and draw them, bring them to faith, regenerate their hearts. I pray that you would use this message to edify your people. It is easy for us, Father, to become caught up in this world, forgetting that we're already part of the next. Help us to live in light of the risen Christ today. In Jesus' name.